First Peter chapter four. Look at one through six, and I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible here. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh unfairly, undeservedly, arm yourselves also. Notice the military metaphor there. Arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he or she who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I wonder what that means. Arm yourselves, verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh. Today is the first day of the rest of your Christian life. No longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And boy, that was kind of the chorus in that song Sonia just uh, sang, Thy will be done. Do you know how weird that sounds to a secular American in 2017? You want God's will to be done? I thought God was supposed to make your will be done. That's not the way it works. For the time already passed is sufficient. He's tongue-in-cheek a little bit there. For you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality outside of marriage, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all of this, they, the crowd, the cool kids, the world, are surprised that as a Christian now, you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to marginalize you. What's wrong with Anthony? Kind of thing. But don't panic. They will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. The King James says the quick and the dead because in 1611, the English word quick meant living. And that's why you're always going to need new translations every generation in every language because languages change. And, uh, you know, I have great respect for the King James translation. It's by far, historically speaking, the greatest English translation of all time. But it was finished in 1611. And the English language has changed a lot just in the last five years, much less the last 400 years. Am I right? Can you say ginormous, you know? Can you say Twitter? And so you always need new translations, not because the Bible changes, but because the languages the culture's changed. So we got a timeless word. We have to speak practically to our generation. God is ready and willing and able to judge the living, the quick, and the dead. For the gospel has, for this purpose, been preached even to those Christians who are now dead, that though they were judged in the flesh according to human standards and maybe seem to be uncool and maybe even dangerous because they actually believe this stuff, judged in the flesh as men, They may live, and they are living now, in the Spirit, according to the will of God. Reading those verses kind of reminds me of Michael Card's first big Christian song. If you don't know who Michael Card is, uh, and if you've got Spotify or something like that, uh, get him him up. And uh, He's a a guy that has a master's degree in biblical studies, and he's also a world-class musician and songwriter. And just about, uh, I like just about everything he writes, but his first big song that really kind of got him going in his Christian music career was called, uh, I Have Decided. Remember that song? I have decided, have decided, gonna live like a believer, turn my back on the deceiver, gonna live what I believe. And so, one of the, the lines in that song 
uh, is when the world begins to see you change, don't expect them to applaud. But keep your eyes on him and remind yourself you become a work of God. And so that's, that's very consistent with what Peter's saying throughout this whole book, but especially in this section of the book. Let's say a word about the broad context before we look at these six verses. Uh, Peter tells you what his overall objective is in a purpose statement found in the middle of the book. Invariably, biblical books, Trey, will have a purpose statement. Sometimes it's at the very beginning, and sometimes it's at the end, and sometimes it's in the middle. And if you read through the book sequentially a lot, like Steve does, you notice how the book kind of builds to and moves away from that statement, living faith under fire. And here's that statement, that purpose statement. Uh, Gibson Lovett, uh, Lloyd uh, Davis, uh, uh, Savannah Bowers, as spiritual aliens and short-timers on earth, Christians should not be controlled by our emotions and our feelings. Those need to be appreciators, not initiators. But we should consistently live our faith centered on the one we trusted to save us. So we need to trust him day by day in our Christian life, our Lord Jesus Christ, so that unbelievers who slander us, uh, who are going to be surprised by the changes in their old friend, so that unbelievers who might slander us because we're believers will see the reality of Christ in our lives and ultimately glorify God by coming to him in faith. If you wanted me to kind of try to sum up the essential content of the book, I would say basically the book saying, Trust and Obey the Lord, Christian, as TDY is a military acronym for temporary duty, as TDY, temporary duty exiles on earth. So, Clay, don't get too at home down here, okay? Uh, not everybody thinks like we do. Encouraged by a joyous anticipation of being at home with our risen Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity. Uh, there's a warning. You hear people say, Nancy, don't be so heavenly minded. You're no earthly good. And I'm sure that can happen. But I see that very, very rarely in my life and very rarely in anybody else's life nowadays because we're all about God's our spiritual success agent. He's supposed to give us everything we want now, which isn't the way it works. We need to have uh, an anticipation that drives us that we've been made for a person and a place, and that person is Jesus Christ, and that place isn't here, something much better than here. Now, this book is written to believers, and the premise of the book is even when you're in the will of God, And sometimes, especially if you're living the will of God, you're going to face opposition. You're going to have to deal with unfair, undeserved suffering. Uh, Sonia's song dealt with that. Uh, We're going to look at Psalm 73 in a minute. But a lot of you, I look at you, and I know some of the things you're going through, uh, because I I follow you around every Tuesday. Right, It's my day off out of the office, so I follow you on Tuesday, so I kind of know what you're doing. Uh, And a lot of us are dealing with some unfair suffering, stuff you didn't expect. Uh, you did the right thing and it was misunderstood or misconstrued or not appreciated and that kind of thing. So this book is written on the premise that no matter how much faith you have as a Christian, you are going to face suffering inevitably and aging and all kinds of things like that. Uh, and so these are believers that are being written to then and now in the first century, 21st century. And This is uh, how you get on the train. The Christian train isn't Baptist, it's not Methodist, it's not American, it's not Republican, it's not politically conservative, uh, it's not Rush Limbaugh doesn't own the franchise on it. It uh, transcends colors, countries, and cultures. 
And it's the message that because Christ died for our sins as our substitute, we don't have to die in our sins. In fact, he himself in John 6 says, unless you believe I am the Messiah, you're going to die in your sins. That's why this is so important. But the cross is only part of the story, right? He's not just a virtuous martyr. He's a risen Savior, and the tomb is empty. Can you believe we're having murderous violence on the Temple Mount? Do you realize when Israel liberated the Temple Mount in 1967, they allowed the Mufti, the Muslim cleric, to continue to control access to the Temple Mount? even though militarily they could have insisted they controlled it. And Homer's been there, and you may remember we had to go through metal detectors to get to the Temple Mount. And then the other day I read in the aftermath of one of the uh, riots that took place in the last couple of weeks that some of the Palestinians are objecting to putting in metal detectors. Now, what that tells me is the way we went in, the legal way, they had metal detectors 10 years ago. The other ways, and there are lots of ways you can get there if you look at a map of Jerusalem. Apparently, the back door, I can't believe the Israelis ever did this, but apparently they're talking about putting uh, metal detectors all the way around the thing so you can't get in from any direction. And there, were, there was a, a, a riot about that instigated by the Mufti, who's the Muslim cleric, that the Israelis allow to run the Temple Mount, yeah, but you're never going to hear that uh, in the uh, in the popular press. They either don't know it or don't understand what Mufti is. It's not all malicious. Sometimes they just don't know what they're talking about. Just like some preachers I know. But uh, you know, the cross and the saving power of the cross is validated by the resurrection. And the bottom line is. If you want life after death, you're going to have to go to the one who died and came out the other side. And Jesus claims to be the issue and the issuer of eternal life, which is precisely why when you get specific like that, the world hates you. Because they want to believe anything about Jesus except that he's the, the way, the truth, and the life. This is why 1 John 5 says, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ, is the Christ, is the Savior, is the issue and issuer of eternal life, has overcome the world because the world wants you to believe anything. Listen, Jason, the world's fine with you believing that Jesus was a nice, well-meaning, wise teacher, sage person that told us to turn the other cheek and, and, uh, and love one another. You can say lots of nice things about Jesus. Most of the atheists out there do not say bad things about Jesus. They say really bad things about the disciples <laughs> and about you indirectly too, but uh, not you personally, Steve. But but this idea that Jesus is the God-man Savior and he's the issue and he's the only issue uh, is inherently offensive to human viewpoint thought. And uh, that's part of the reason when you identify with him, you are going to attract some flack in some case. And we've had millions of us martyred in the last 2,000 years, so this is nothing new. Uh, I tried to summarize the content a little earlier. Here's the what I would say, here's the take-home, the practical import uh, for Natalie or for Michelle or for Jan of this book overall. It's, it's saying, hey, Jan, even when your mom is dealing with some uh, important physical issues and is probably reaching 
she may outlive all of us, but you know, she, she may be going to heaven sooner rather than later. Uh, keep on trusting and obeying the Lord even when there doesn't seem to be, because you can't figure out how anything is lining up, and there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. So that's, that's the overall import of the book. We're going to look at uh, a portion that really deals with this idea that sometimes, in fact, almost inevitably, uh, Christians will suffer in spite of believing the right things and doing the right things. And how do you kind of react to that? What should be your mindset as you do that? So let's pray for teachability to this strategic passage uh, and also for those uh, who protect and serve us like firefighters there at Ground Zero or um, peace officers just about a year ago. Those men were were killed for doing the right thing. And then also our active military, okay? And uh, let's see, uh, I won't ask you, Ken, since we kidded you about that. And Michael, uh, lead us an opening prayer, okay? Now, um, I, I did all of that just now on purpose. I did a little longer contextual introduction to kind of set this principle up. Uh, why in the world would I spend like, 10 minutes talking about the overall book when we're only going to look at six verses today. Uh, Because failing to remember the big picture can cause us to fail to properly contribute to our team, our spiritual team, and our sports teams. And just last week, and this was Wednesday night, and ironically, Ron and I were listening to a portion of this game before church started on the radio. But this was uh, from uh, the San Francisco Examiner, I think, from Wednesday, Giants outfielder forgets how many outs they have. Let's runner advance. That's embarrassing. Story is, it hasn't been a great year for the San Francisco Giants after winning the World Series uh, every even year since 2010. The uh, baseball Giants find themselves 22 games under 500. 500 is when you win and lose the same amount of games. So if you win 20 and lose 20, you're 500. They are uh, 22 games on the dark side. That's not good. And they're 29 and a half games out of first place. So guess what? They're not going to finish first place this year. Um, and I believe in miracles, by the way. Um, but that's not going to happen. Uh, what happened to the Giants on Wednesday night goes a long way toward explaining why that's the case. During the seventh inning of the Giants game against the Indians, that's why Ron was listening to it, he's an Indians fan, uh, Cleveland's Edwin Encarnacion hit a fly ball to left for the second out of the inning. Giants outfielder uh, Kelby Tomlinson did what he's supposed to do. He ran over and collected, caught the ball for the out. The only problem, he caught the second out and kept running to the dugout, in other words. Instead of just throwing the ball back in so the pitcher, and I always loved pitchers because I was one, uh, could do his job and try to get that third out. Tomlinson, thinking he was over, started running in towards the dugout. Now, managers, when you're being paid a couple million dollars a year to play outfield, you're supposed to know stuff like that. You're supposed to know the rules, you know. Taking note of Tomlinson's mental, I won't say that word. Uh, I forgot about that. I would have blotted it out. Uh, the Indians' Eric Gonzalez immediately advanced to third base. You know, he touched the, 
the base because it got caught. He advanced him. You don't want people on third base because they're very close to home plate at that point. Uh, Thompson can count himself lucky, though. Uh, enough of his other teammates remember the rules and the Giants won the game five to four. So the principle is, uh, he, you know, oops, the principle is not that. Everybody close your eyes real quick. Close your eyes. Don't look. Yeah, there you go. There's a more elegant way to do that. But uh, failing to remember the big picture can cause us to properly contribute to the team. And that happens to us spiritually and also in sports. I won't tell you the whole story, but I was pitching for the Tanglewood Tigers one time. I knew there were no outs, but when I got a, a one hopper back to the mound and actually caught it, and they called me Dr. Strange, Glo- Strange Glove during my career because I was not a very good fielder, uh, I got the ball and realized, was there a guy on first or a guy on first and second? And why is that important? Because if there's a guy on first and second, got to throw it to third. If there's only a guy at first, got to throw it to second. And I, in nanosecond, I thought, you know what, I don't know. But if I throw it to second, at least I get an out. And sure enough, there was a guy in first and second. Threw it to second. Second baseman stumbled over there, got the force out. Now I got first and third, one out. And Steve, my third baseman, coach's father, uh, cleared his throat and in a very Christian manner said, Brad, get your head in the game! <laughs> and I thought that was great because I totally deserved that. But... Failure to see the big picture uh, is going to hinder how well you can contribute to the team. And that's kind of what we're seeing here in this book, in this passage. Now, I see this book, this passage like this. I see the foundational principle in verses 3, 4, and 5. I see two pillars coming from that. The general principle of verse 1 we'll look at now. And the specific principle that follows verse 2. And then the overarching idea, the take home, is the primary principle in verse 6. So let's look at that. Look at verse 1. Therefore, stop there. Anytime in the Bible, hey, Henry, when you see therefore in the Bible, you got to look back and see what it's there for. Okay? Therefore saying, based on what we just said, so what did he just say? Well, you go back to verse 13, verses 13 all the way through 22 of the previous chapter. Don't let these chapter divisions throw you off, Okay? The chapter divisions of numbers were added long after the text to help you find stuff, but they can kind of interrupt the flow. What do we see, therefore? Therefore, the general principle he's teaching here is uh, for Zane or for Julie uh, Miller or for Brad McCoy is it's better to do the will of God and suffer whatever the repercussions are than to avoid doing the will of God and avoid that suffering. That's the principle, Right? The motivation is because that's what Jesus did. That's the whole basis of our salvation. He died in our place undeservedly, unfairly. And the overall import of the therefore that he's going back to in verse 1 of chapter 4 is even in the midst of the worst, of the worst kind of unfair suffering, and we've all been there, believers can choose stability of character. You can't choose stability of circumstances knowing that God is glorified when we in faith deal with unfair suffering, and he will vindicate us. He's on our side now and in eternity, certainly. So look at verse 1 again. Therefore, in light of all that and the example of Christ, since Christ has suffered unfairly, undeservedly in the flesh during his time on earth, arm yourselves, military metaphor, with the same purpose 
And then the next part of that is like a parenthesis. Arm yourself with the same purpose, verse 2, so that you can live the rest of your life doing the right thing. But let's, let's look at that. Uh, when suffering as a Christian, you've heard me say this before, and this isn't original with me, but when you're suffering as a Christian, you got to look to Christ. Rather than questioning and doubting and pouting and dropping outing, which is my tendency to do, I mean, we got a family over here. I mean, Julie's pregnant with Baker, and we got some kind of kidney issue in Baker. Baker's got a kidney issue. We don't know exactly what what it is. They're going to find out hopefully more Tuesday, right? You do you see the doctor Tuesday? Will you get imp, input Tuesday, or are they going to do a test? And you, yeah, okay, we'll see. You know, um, but yeah, we're, we've got you right near the top of the list there. Uh, but therefore, since Christ is suffering in the flesh. When suffering, we've got to look to Christ. I often say, you know, for me, I like to put my uh, worst deal I'm dealing with at any point in time against the background of Christ. The cross and or the empty tomb will work quite well. It kind of shrinks stuff down. It lets, it lets you kind of put your arm around it. Since Christ has suffered unfairly, uh, trust me, if you identify with him, you're probably going to face some of that. And even just being in the flesh, in a physical body, you're going to, Age, you're going to have physical issues, you're going to have all kinds of emotional stuff that comes around you got to deal with. Arm yourself with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. In light of how Christ faced unfair suffering and how God the Father used that to produce superlative blessing, eternal blessing for those who trust in the Savior, arm yourself with the same mindset, with the same purpose, to keep on trusting and obeying. How did Christ deal with the cross Look at verse 23 of chapter 2. While being reviled, beaten to a pulp, and then crucified, he did not revile in return. What did he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him, God, who judges righteously. And that's what we have got to train ourselves to do. We've got to build ourselves kind of a battleship of the soul and it's hard to build a battleship in the middle of a hurricane. You you need one in a hurricane because they can actually ride out hurricanes. But it's hard to build one in the middle of a hurricane. But it, most Christians aren't that excited about that project until a big one hits. And then they want to have one meeting with a pastor and boom, you can build a battleship. And you really can't do that. You can kind of give them some ideas. But uh, it's like physical fitness. You know, when you uh, if your house catches on fire and you got to take, you know, uh, grab your kids and your wife and take them out. It'd be nice if you were in physical shape to do that, but it's too late to go to the Simmons Center and get in physical shape. I mean, you kind of got to do what you what you can do based on where you are. Uh, now, what is this? He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Um, you know, if you get tempted, some I, I've read some crazy views on that. That uh, you know, if you if something bad enough happens to you, you're no longer want to go out and carouse. You know, and uh, I don't do a lot of carousing, but I've seen a lot of people who who do some crazy stuff, and it seems like the worst things that happen to them, the worst they act out in their in their moral lives. So I don't think that's what it means at all. In fact, what's the context here? What are we talking about, Trey? We're talking about Christ's suffering, which was unfair suffering and humanly speaking martyrdom. Okay, so he or she who has suffered has ceased from sin is saying believers who suffer because of their fidelity to the Lord, have ceased from sin, not absolutely, not to the point of sinless perfection, but in ways and enough such that the world, the average Joe, has noticed 
you're different and they're offended by you enough to cause you to suffer, you know, make fun of you, uh, marginalize you, this kind of thing. The one uh, who's suffering because of his or her faith has separated him or herself enough from a sinful, unbelieving lifestyle, somebody's noticed and taken offense. That's what that means. Doesn't that make sense in context? That's what it's talking about. Uh, you always remember that anything God takes us to, he'll bring us through. But you can't doubt, pout, and drop out. You gotta, you're a double-minded man, as James 1 says. Uh, sometimes God delivers us, saves us from difficulties out of them. He calms our chaos. Other times he delivers us, saves us through them. And he calms us so we can deal with it. And I've taught, you know, we, I've seen people who can handle it one second at a time. You always talk about one day at a time. And the cool thing about one day at a time, you can think, well, you know, if I want to do this incredible goal, glorify God in my life for some physical or some kind of business goal or school goal, it's going to take 16 whole weeks, you know, to make that A in organic chemistry. That's a long time. But if you do one, I tell you what, for me, and I love taking Greek and Hebrew at Dallas Seminary, but second year Hebrew I took during the summer. So it was really, really pretty intense. And I always felt like, and I always made really good grades in Hebrew because I knew I would either totally understand it where we, what we'd been taught, or I wouldn't be able to connect any of the dots at all. So I was too scared of failing to allow myself to ever take a day off or get behind. Now, unfortunately, I've lost a lot of that, uh, skill in, in Hebrew, although nowadays with, uh, there's a, there's a Bible program called Bible Works that conjugates the verbs, diagrams the sentences for you. It's kind of like a CAT scan. So, you know, if you know what the terms mean, you can actually kind of just look at that and not have to do kind of what we used to have to do 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But, uh, yeah, the one who has suffered in the flesh unfairly because they're Christian has ceased, separated himself or herself from identifying with a sinful lifestyle enough. Somebody's actually noticed and taken offense, and you don't necessarily want to needlessly offend people, but that's actually a good thing. That's actually uh, uh, a positive thing spiritually. Look at 4.13. Uh, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, identifying with him, keep on rejoicing, because somebody actually noticed. Verse 14, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because somebody actually noticed the Spirit of glory rest on you. They can't see the Holy Spirit, but they can see your uh, vocabulary, your attitude, your commitment to your spouse, your uh, honesty, your integrity, that kind of thing. Over time, they're going to notice stuff like that. So that's the uh, general principle. And let's look at the specific principles, kind of its fraternal twin. And again, you've got to connect that with the verb in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh unfairly, and so it may happen to you too. Arm yourselves for the same purpose, verse 2, so to live the rest of the time, your time in the flesh, living in this physical body on earth, no longer for the strong desires of men, but for the will of God, to embrace that as what's really important to you. Even in the midst of suffering, we've got to predecide daily, maybe decision by decision, to live for the one who died for us. He's basically saying here, uh, Anthony, dedicate yourself. And boy, Anthony is a guy who thrives on activity. I mean, you got a lot of irons in the fire. I heard Bonnie's pregnant. Is that true? Yeah, that's the rumor going around. And it's, it's a boy? Yeah, we have a name yet? Baker's already been taken. 
so you can't use that one. Does that have anything to do with Baker Mayfield, by the way? Okay. Because it's funny, because my oldest son, Jamie, uh, just had a baby six months ago. His wife technically had it this time, but they named him Mason. And I don't think it has to do with our quarterback, uh, Mason Rudolph. But I can't, I can't get a total. They will not, uh, either confirm or deny they named their son after, I thought Brad would have a nice ring to it, but they named him Mason. So we got Baker, we got Mason. Uh, somebody needs to name their kid Brad around here, you know, sooner or later. I keep hoping, you know. That'd be a lot of pressure if somebody named themselves after you. But it's funny, uh, back when physical libraries were really, really important, and they still are important in many ways, I always thought, man, wouldn't it be neat if somebody named a library after me? Because I love libraries so much, you know. But I found out, at, even at Dallas Seminary, the name over the library is the name of some guy who gave about $10 million to build the library. And so I thought, well, that's one of my goals. I'm going to give uh, the city of Duncan a lot of money so they can build a library. So as soon as the church pays me enough, I can do that. I will do that. Now, uh, now I'm just kidding, of course. Yeah. <laughs> hey, listen, the church has been very, very generous to me. Uh, it, it's funny, when I went to the ministry uh, 35 and a half years ago, Natalie, you probably haven't heard me say you haven't heard me say this yet, but I've got like seven jokes, and you've heard like six and a half of them, but... Uh, literally, when I first went into ministry, I had no desire to become rich or famous. And 35 years later, my plan is working. It is really working great. I'm not rich or famous, so it's, it's all good. Uh, but yeah, dedicate yourselves to live the rest of your life on earth. That sounds like something you would hear in a self-help course, but it's really true. You know, each day, and we, I know Dale likes that song, This is the Day, and it's a good point. I mean, every day you, you wake up and you go look at the obituaries, if you're not there, God's giving you that that uh, that day, right? And every day could be your last day, right? But for sure, every day is the first day of the rest of your life. And every believer here can live a world-class, quality, spiritual life. But it's going to start with daily dedication to the Lordship of Christ as a Christian out of gratitude, love, and appreciation for who the Savior is. So that is your specific principle. Now, to me, verses 3 through 5 are like the foundational perspective of everything he says in this section. And it's interesting. It breaks down into past, present, and future. Purposeful perspective for Clay, whether you're a young guy or uh, Brad, an older guy. uh, Live now in light of the past, present, and future. Verse 3, the past. For the time, and he's talking to Christians, Already has passed. It's sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. Just, you know, it feels good, do it kind of thing. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now, some people really hyperanalyze the exact Greek terms there, but you're basically talking about a biblical excess outside of the bounds of basic morality in the area of intoxication, uh, sexuality and uh, worship. That's basically what it's talking about. So I, I don't think I need to go into a lot of detail there, but you know those kind of things do happen, and some people just love that stuff, right? Uh, but the point is, uh, the people he's writing to grew up in the Greco-Roman culture, which was a very amoral culture. Uh, it's, it's almost as bad as postmodern American culture. It wasn't quite that. It's actually probably worse, if you can believe that. And so most of these folks 
had grown up in a culture that emphasized that women were chattel, and you may get married, but that's more for social reasons, and you're always going to have lots of girlfriends and, and sometimes boyfriends, and they encourage all kinds of bizarre kind of stuff like that. And that was just considered to be the norm for men. Uh, that's not Bible teaching, that patriarchal culture, that was very Roman, Greco-Roman kind of thing. I mean, Aristotle wasn't quite sure that women were like fully human, okay? And I know for a fact that women are the stronger sex, the superior sex, because they have fewer heart attacks, fewer strokes, and less prostate problems than men. So just, <laughs> I, I, I've studied that. But um, so he's saying, look, uh, you've had enough enough of that in your life, and you know, that's getting you nowhere. It's just spinning your wheels, right? And he's saying, rather than prioritizing, uh, impressing people, and, you know, uh, talking about locker room talk, uh, I was in a lot of baseball locker rooms and even in golf clubhouses. You know, when I grew up, uh, some of the golf tournaments you play in, there's a lot of drinking, a lot of smoking, a lot of guys bragging about what they do with women uh, before and after that you play golf with them, you know? And so, uh, you know, you kind of get tired of listening to it, but you can divide it by a factor of about 100 because all these guys don't actually do all this stuff. They just want to impress their friends. But actually, that kind of stuff can actually has a certain amount of gravitas with, with kind of secular thinkers. It just does. And if you ladies don't understand that, you don't understand the world we, we live in, we men live in. And uh, But then you women have your own problems. You talk about the romance novels and the, uh, get this, uh, my one of my, well, I can't tell you about my sister's weakness, my sister-in-law's weakness, but I would if I could, but you'd probably tell Debbie and I'd be in trouble. So I won't do that. But uh, he's just saying, look, this is the first day of the rest of your life. Just don't, don't be spinning your wheels like you used to do. Verse 4, and then watch this. In all of this, they, that is the average uh, Joe six-pack that is your neighbor, the guy you grew up in, went to high school with and stuff. In all of this, they're surprised that now that you guys are believers, you don't run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. Uh uh, when the world begins to see you change, don't expect them to applaud kind of thing. If anything, they're going to think, what happened to him? He's holier than now. Sometimes it's amazing. I had some situations in dental school. Uh, I had some, you know, I sold scientific instruments between dental school and seminary. And I remember, uh, uh, we had this guy from, uh, uh, Chicago or something flew down that was kind of represented this, uh, company that we sold some of his instruments, scientific instruments. And I was assigned uh, to kind of do sales calls with him one day, including MD Anderson Hospital and places like that you've heard about. So I, I, so I had, you know, I showed him, showed him around town and showed him some more customers and uh, did some sales calls with him. And uh, at the end of the day, I took him to a hotel room, and I, I'm I'm waiting to go down to seminary. I'm a Christian, you know. I'm married. He he. When I let him out at his hotel, he goes, "Hey, where's the action around here?" And I went, like, you're talking about Bible study or what? <laughs> and he went, what? And I said, no, I'm kidding. I, I have no idea, you know. Uh, don't ask me. I wasn't sure what to do. He was like 30 years older than me and twice as big as I was. So I wanted to be nice about saying I didn't know. But, uh, yeah, he actually was, uh, I think he was trying to impress me that he wanted to go find some action, whatever that meant. I got a feeling I know what he meant. But, you know, I think he was surprised I didn't want to go with him probably. So in all this, they're surprised you don't run with them in the same excess, and they malign you. Uh, Warren Wiersbe, Warren Wiersbe, who is a uh, 
evangelical teacher, preacher, Bible study guy who writes real practical commentaries. And some of us may be get too technical, but he's real practical. He says about verse 4, quote, Unsaved people do not understand the change that their friends experience when they trust Christ and become children of God. Too many today think that while it's sad, it's not unusual when people wreck their bodies, destroy their homes, and ruin their lives by running from one major sin to another. But let a drunkard become sober, this is Wearsby, or an immoral person, pure, and the world thinks he has lost his mind. <laughs> what happened to him? Or he's a holy Joe. You know, I used to throw that at me. Um, I remember one, you won't believe this, one summer, uh, the summer before I went to dental school, uh, the only job I could find was working for this air conditioning company, and me and another guy installed air conditioners in mobile homes. Now, what do you know about me installing stuff? I mean, I can't open a can, man. I mean, it's pitiful. And uh, I ended up getting fired because I stepped on a very expensive thermostat when I was double-timing it to the truck when my boss was not happy with me. But that's a whole different story. I didn't put that on my resume, so I probably wouldn't have got hired here you know, 30 years ago. But, uh, yeah, I can remember uh, the first day I was signed this one guy, this truck. We, I went with different guys every day, and I was kind of the helper. Uh, this one guy was, we, we were driving north in Houston and uh, past this big church, and he said, yeah, I know several Bible thumpers that go to that church. I went, you do? Oh man, yeah, I hate those Bible thumpers, don't you? I didn't say that, but I'm not sure what I said. It wasn't very good at the time, but uh, it was hard to know what to do. But yeah, you know, and he later called me a holy Joe because I didn't do something he thought I should do. And it's amazing, you know, how how offensive just not encouraging and participating in some of these things can be to certain people. And when you get to a certain age, I mean, I'm old enough now, and since I'm a preacher. You know, people don't usually ask me if there's any action anywhere. I don't get those kind of things so much anymore, you know. Although, I, you know, I, I have told this story several times. Now, Tommy mentioned this at the men's breakfast the other time, but men's uh, meeting last week. But uh, sometimes uh, if you play golf, you know, when you if you go on a golf course that's crowded, they always want to put you in four so they can get as many people in the golf course and make as much money as possible. So one time in Tulsa, Jamie and I are, Went to go play golf in the middle of the afternoon, and these two guys we didn't know were paired with us. And I, you know, this guy is just—he's cussing. And I grew up with a with a dad that cussed a lot, so I'd heard all these words. I know what they all mean. He's just cussing. He's hitting the ball good, and he's cussing every like every shot. He's cussing, cussing, cussing. And you know, American men uh, once they slow down, want to talk to you. They want to know what you do for a living. You know, so the more this guy was cussing, the more Jamie's kind of looking at me like. This is going to be funny when he finds out what you do, man. Because he's seen this movie before, you know. And, I, and when we get like on the seventh tee, and we got to wait for a minute because there's people in the fairway. So, and I had this OSU cap Jamie had given me that said "Dad" on it. It was from Dad's Day, so I had this orange cap that said "Dad" on it. And he was calling me "Dad" the whole time. And he was like, you know, he was like probably young enough to be my son. But anyway, we're on this tee, uh, and I'm not playing very good, so I'm not in a good mood, but. Uh, you know, we're waiting, and he says, Jamie, what do you do for a living? Of course, Jamie and he are on a first-name basis. What do you do? Well, I'm a CPA, and I do this, and the other. He says, okay, Dad, what do you do? And Jamie starts laughing. I said, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor at a church in Duncan. And he kind of oh, kind of swallowed his gum, man. <laughs> Which is not, it's not bad to see that reaction. Sometimes they don't react at all, like, you know. But uh, he went, oh, okay, you know, and he kind of got a little nervous, and he topped his tee shot, and uh, it started laying really bad there for a couple of holes, so... 
You can actually use that to your advantage if you're playing a big-time golf, you know, just so you all know. But in the past, uh, used to look a lot like uh, many of these people, maybe. Uh, and in the present, since you're not into that anymore, uh, you're actually going to uh, surprise people. They're surprised that you've changed, and they'll probably be offended. You know, I think you've lost your mind. What happened to Anthony? What happened to uh, David? And then the future, he says, but hey, don't let that bother you. Who cares about impressing the world, you know? Um, better to be focused on glorifying God. But they, all those folks, if they don't come to faith, and hopefully they will, will give an account to him who's ready to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. Uh, they're going to uh, see him. Now hold your place there. Go to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is the best first place, in my opinion, to go when you're dealing with unfair suffering. Much of the first book of First Peter is great, too. The book of Job is a classic, but it's a long book. And it's going to take you a while to get through that. So if you want kind of a, uh, a first place to start, I really like Psalm 73. And if you look at verse 13... The writer here is really bummed out at God because so many bad things happen to good people and so many good things seem to happen to bad people. That's what he's talking about for the first couple of verses. And then he kind of comes to his preliminary conclusion, Psalm 73, verse 13. He says, at a pragmatic level, surely in vain I've been doing the right thing. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands from innocence. For I've been stricken all day long. i got all kinds of problems. And your average uh, drug dealer over here is living in a much better house and has a lot fancier car and seems to have a lot nicer life than i got. Uh, I've got. I've got all kinds of issues i got to deal with. Verse 15. And he's reflecting after thinking through this. So he's already come to his conclusion as he's writing this. He says, you know what? At that point, I thought, uh, if, uh, if I will speak those words that God's not relevant and he's not doing anything around me because uh, my circumstances are so painful. If I had spoken that to other people or at the synagogue, I realized I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I tried to understand why I was wrong with thinking that you've goofed God, it was troublesome in my sight. I couldn't understand it until I came into the sanctuary of God and looked up instead of just around then I perceive their end. Then I'm talking about one heartbeat away after the drug dealer dies if he's not regenerate. Surely they're the ones with the problem, not the guy with the, the guy with the mansion and the Rolls Royce who's doing all kinds of horrible things to people. Uh, he's not somebody I should envy if he's as a non-believer. You've set him in a bad, he's in a bad situation because you cast them down to destruction. They're destroyed in a moment. Uh, they're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream, when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Now we'll look at this. Verse 21. He's thinking back and saying, hey, once I realized eternity is relevant here, I realized I had nothing to uh, pine over when I saw the physical success of those who had rejected God. And he says, you know what, God, when my heart was embittered at you, when I was doubting, pouting, wanting to drop out, when I was pierced within... I was like a dumb animal. I was senseless and ignorant like a beast before you. Nevertheless, even though I was second-guessing you and doubting, pouting, I am continually with you because you took hold of my hand. I wasn't holding on to you. You're holding on to me. 
right? If, if Amanda is taking uh, Mavis uh, across the street, busy street, she's not going to say, hey, Mavis, hold on to my hand because we're going to cross a busy street. As a good mom, she's going to grab Mavis's hand. You're not going to give her the chance to let go and get hit by a car. You're going to hold on to her hand, right? That's what the psalmist is saying here. I'm continuing with you. You're continuing with me. Even when I'm dumb enough to second guess you and be mad at you because you took hold of, took hold of my hand. And then he says, whole new perspective. With your counsel, you'll guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Now, sometimes people talk about, uh, uh, life verses. You know, I, Romans 12, 1, a lot of times people's life verse, you know, uh, uh, give your life a living sacrifice and that's cool. There's a lot of verses that people, but I've never heard anybody say my life verse is, uh, Psalm 73, 24, which I think would be a good one. With God's counsel, he'll guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Now here's another one nobody claims. Verse 26. My flesh and my heart will fail. You know, your physical body is only going to be good for about a hundred years, give or take. You know, and a lot of us won't even get that far. Uh, with your counsel, you're going to guide me. Then I get to go to heaven. Who have I in heaven but thee? There's no U-Hauls behind hearses, right? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart will fail. That's a Bible promise nobody wants to claim. But God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you that I was envying are going to perish. You destroy all those who don't trust in you. But as for me, right now, even when I'm facing unfair suffering, the nearness of God is my good. I've made the Lord God my refuge. And rather than questioning God, my job is to tell of all of his works. Okay, uh, I'm not trying to make points with Dale here today, but I probably need some points with you, so I'll do it. Dale always wants to look at the positive side of stuff and wants to see how God's working and stuff. Kind of like Mama Joe used to be. Every time something weird would happen at the church, and I hate weird stuff when it happens at church, she always goes, oh, great, I can't wait to see how God's going to work this out. And I'm thinking, don't say that. I want him to work it out in five seconds and move on to the next stuff, you know. But she was always, she always had that attitude. And I love that. Uh, past, present, and future. Uh, you've probably seen this before, but uh, are you familiar with the Three tenses of salvation. If you're a believer uh, in Jesus Christ, when you trusted in Him, you were saved from the penalty of sin. As we live a righteous Christian life, we're being saved, delivered from the power of sin in our experience. And then uh, when He comes for us or uh, takes us home, we'll be saved from the very presence of sin, and we will be unable to sin after we go to be with the Lord. So that will not be an issue. Okay, let's look at the primary principle, kind of the overarching idea as I see this passage. Look back at verse 6 of chapter 4. For the gospel has, among other purposes, for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged, they are as a gnomic thing, they were judged during their experience on earth as men according to men's standards, and so the cool crowd thinks they're losers because they're not uh, willing to do certain things to get successful, and they actually believe this stuff about Christ, uh, that they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. The MacArthur Study Bible has a nice study note on that, and since it's much more concise than I would be, I'll read it. Uh, Peter has in mind here believers, uh, the Gospels have preached even to those who are dead. Peter has in mind here believers who had heard and accepted the Gospel of Christ when they were still alive, but who had died by the time Peter wrote this letter. Some of them 
perhaps had been martyred for their faith. Uh, and so though they were dead physically, they had been killed physically, they were triumphantly alive in the spirit. Who not have in heaven but thee, and besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. With your counsel, God may then receive me to glory. So one of the cool things about the gospel is, even though it will alienate you from the world, it guarantees you a uh, all-expenses-paid trip from your casa to God's casa. Okay? Uh, bienvenido a la casa de Dios. You know, that's... I always kid Tomas that uh, uh, we're all going to speak Spanish in heaven, so we'll see. Right? Uh, take this to heart. Living for Christ is not easy. It comes with a price, but it's well worth it now and forever. And you're never going to regret doing the right thing, especially as you get a little time that separates you. You look back and you don't have to regret things. And I think a lot of uh, true guilt and regret causes all kinds of physical and emotional problems. And when we get to heaven, we'll find out how we're wired, probably better that way. But let me close just with some practical ideas here. Uh, you know, we're talking about the fact that uh, uh, when you're doing the right thing, uh, not only will you not avoid problems, you may actually attract problems. Now, for us right now in modern America, we're probably not going to be arrested and executed by uh, the uh, federales, but, uh, you know, we're increasingly being marginalized and misunderstood, and, and some of our basic, most cherished tenets are now seen as hate speech. And so, you know, rather than getting mad about that, you know, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, I don't think he's talking about just about widowers. I think he's talking about those who see the world around them, the sinful world around them, not just as bad, and it is bad, but as sad. It's just sad that people settle for all this garbage, right? And uh, so increasingly we're being seen as uh, you know repressive and evil and backward. And rather than being mean in response to that unfair kind of critique, I think we need to face it like Jesus did, the guys crucifying him. We know we're right. We can. We don't have to be defensive. We can just be clear. And as God gives us the grace, let's be kind. What does it say? A gentle answer turns away wrath. And just do the right thing, even um, if we know it's probably not going to help very much. But here's some of the areas, and this isn't just for these young guys here, Henry. You know, uh, man. In a way, in a way. It's different, but it's easier to kind of live for the Lord when you're in New Mexico helping somebody and with a group and than to get back here and go back to that difficult family unit you live with, you know. And they actually expect you to actually believe this stuff and live consistently with it. And uh, they've, like, memorized the entire Constitution, if you need to know that, you know. In the original English, by the way, so that was, that was good. They're working on it, right? I got the First Amendment if you need it, but... But, so you look at, I think adults see this and say, that's the kind of stuff I had to deal with as a teenager. Now you deal with it now too. And these aren't, uh, uh, these overlap, these categories overlap. They're not necessarily distinct. But the kind of decisions we've got to make so that uh, we actually are identified by our thinking and behavior with the Christ, and that may bring us some flat, are things we've got to choose the Savior over ourself, and that's a big one. You know, God does not do a sin nature ectomy on you when you accept the free gift of eternal life. He gives you a capacity to overcome the sin nature. That's why Paul in Galatians says, 
uh, walk in the Spirit and you won't carry out the desire of your sin nature. You still have a sin nature pulling you to be sinful, lazy, and selfish. And so that's always there. So that's always the big battle. Uh, Christ over the crowd. Um, if I'm going to go to the youth group, I'm going to talk about that. Probably use those categories. Man, the crowd, the being popular, man, the crowd is so cruel. Once you don't quite meet any of their criteria, man, they will just throw you under the bus. Uh, people talk about Christians shooting their wounded, and sometimes we have. But man, the crowd is much worse than that. Uh, the significant over the superficial. You know, I think in addition to all the moral anarchy that we're seeing in our culture, the, the real problem is Americans obsess over superficial nonsense like Paris Hilton's shoes she's wearing this week, you know, as opposed to significant things. The North Koreans have nukes. They have hundreds of thousands of political prisoners, most of whom are Christians, that they're treating like Hitler treated the Jews. These people are evil. They're terrible. And there's nothing we're going to do to make them like us. And the same thing with ISIS. There's nothing you can do to make ISIS like you. It's a rabid dog. You cannot negotiate with a rabid dog. Unless you put a muzzle on it and a bullet in the head. And that's the that's the only way you can do it. Well, that's horrible. You can't say that from the pulpit. Well, technically I just did. But here's the thing. They're recording this again? Oh, great. Justice isn't pretty. Never has been. But the original crime is much uglier. And God's justice isn't pretty, but it's always preceded by God's grace. So when you read about the justice of God, you want to put it in that context. But yeah, we're entertaining ourselves to death. A book written several decades ago now, but that's kind of what we obsess over. And as wonderful, technology is neutral. It's not evil. Uh, but the fact that you can literally have your favorite actor or actress's Twitter feed so you know what she ate for breakfast this morning feeds the idea that your people talk about that for 30 minutes uh, instead of thinking about really important things like, uh, how can I love my wife like Christ loved the church? You know? If you're a husband, that's that's kind of a, a major thing in your life, man. It's It's a moving target. You notice that? I mean, they get old on you, man. It's, it's, it's tough, man. Uh, it's so funny because Debbie gets, uh, she works 10 months a year at the school. gets two months off, and she spent like 98% of it 500 miles away from here, which is, it's been necessary. But she's going to, she goes back to work a week from Tuesday. And, man, it's going to, when she sits down at that desk, it's going to feel like she wasn't even gone for about two days because she hasn't had a normal summer which has been unusual, uh, but it's, it's been it's been fun. Not being separated from her, but she left me a lot of food to heat up, so I'm okay. I've actually gained weight, you know, while she's gone. What's up? That's not good, is it? It's kind of like that. You ever see that Andy and Mayberry episode, uh, Andy Griffith show, where May, Aunt B goes out of town for a week and they totally junk up the house, and then the night before she comes back, all of her friends come over and clean the house up, so Aunt B won't worry about it. And what's Aunt B's reaction? She goes, oh, they don't need me. I'm going to go back to, you know, Maine, where I'm from. They said, no, please stay. I mean, we actually fixed it up at the last minute. Permanent over popular, the difficult and the long term, meaning the significant over the quick and easy. And, you know, evangelical preachers do this to you. Three easy steps to world-class marriage. There aren't three easy steps. It's hard to have a good marriage. It's work. 
A good marriage is spelled W-O-R-K, you know? Uh, and that's just the way it is, but nobody wants to hear that. And here's the problem with making the right choices in those areas. The more you make the right choices, the more scorn and discrimination, if not worse, you're going to get from the world. But you can't let the world tell you how you live the Christian life. It doesn't work that way. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, really important truth here for all of us, especially me, and I pray that you'd help this not just to be uh, interesting information, but transforming truth. And I pray you'd move this from our heads to our hearts and then out through our lips and our feet and our hands and steal us, arm, our, arm us to uh, embrace the challenge uh, that we're going to face unfair and undeserved suffering. And sometimes that unfair and undeserved suffering is going to come to us because of our faith, because of our convictions. And rather than compromising or being surprised or, or hurt or shocked or doubting and pouting, uh, help us just to be uh, resolved to draw closer to the Savior who knows exactly how we feel. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our uh, issues, but he has suffered in all the different ways as well. And I thank you for that truth, and I pray you'd empower us to do that to your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.